We are reading from Zechariah chapter 1 up to verse 7. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Idol. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But not my words and my dec- but did not my words and my decrees which I commanded my servant servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined. Now we are reading from the second chapter up to verse 5. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. For some reason, when I was in second year of um, Bible college, I decided to buy a combi van, as you do. It was a 1971 low-light combi van, a camper van, actually, so the top popped up. I thought it would be great to have a project to do in between writing assignments and that sort of thing. And initially, I was really excited about it. And to start with, the restoration was going well. But as the weeks turned into months, and it just sat there in the rain, slowly rusting away, as combis tend to do, I started to think, what have I done? And every time I got home, I had to walk past it. And every time I would feel this pang of guilt and think, what do I know about restoring a combi? I'd bitten off more than I could chew, and I was regretting it. Now, my guess is that I'm not the only one who's found myself feeling like that in the middle of a project. It's not really a guess. I've heard some of your wives talking about it. (laughs) That feeling of of being overwhelmed in, in the middle of a restoration project, that's how God's people were feeling back in the time of Zechariah, where he writes this book which we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. 
We're right at the, the end of the Old Testament. It's, it's 520 BC. Israel had rejected God again and again by following other gods and by committing all sorts of evil atrocities. And so God had finally handed them over to their enemies. And almost 70 years earlier, the Babylonians had come. They'd destroyed and broken down the walls. They'd destroyed God's temple. And they deported most of the population to Babylon. But now, some of, some of them have come back from exile. And they've come back full of, of hopes and dreams that they can rebuild Jerusalem and return it to its, its former glory that it had before. And over the last 18 years, actually, they've had a go at that. They've had a go at rebuilding the temple. But for the last two years, nothing's been happening. It's just been sitting there. Nothing's been going right. There aren't enough people around for the job. There's not enough money. The crops aren't producing. The economy is basically dead. And all of these people who came back from Babylon, who sold up everything and made the three-month journey on foot because they wanted to be a part of the rebuilding project, they're feeling pretty overwhelmed. The walls, they're still in ruins. The temple is sitting there, small, pathetic, not even half done, in the rain, growing weeds. And they're thinking, what have we done? We've bitten off more than we can chew. And it's into this downcast context that God speaks through his prophet, Zechariah. And what do you reckon they need to hear? Maybe something like Isaiah 40, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that a hard service has been completed. Well, look at the word that God actually has for his people. Zechariah 1 verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. They might feel that God owes them for coming back from Babylon and slogging it out in Jerusalem. They might want to blame God for it not going how that they had hoped and dreamed it would go. But God owes them nothing. God's not failing them. It's never the truth that God lets his people down. The truth is, they've let God down. This might seem like a harsh word from God to downcast people. But until that point where we realise that God has never yet let us down, but we've frequently let him down, it's not till then that we're in a place to hear the word of comfort that's actually going to do us any good. This is true for them and it's true for us. Do you feel downcast? Do you feel like you need a comforting word from God? Well, first, you might need to hear a confronting word. God hasn't let you down. We've let God down. Just because God takes us to hard places doesn't mean he's let us down. He may lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, 
But while ever we stay by his side, we don't need to fear any evil. God owes them and us nothing, but he promises us what we don't deserve. He says, and and this is where we start to see the comfort, true comfort from God begin in verse 3. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. But how exactly have they turned away from God? You know, the Lord was angry with their ancestors, we read. And when you know the Old Testament, you know that God was angry with their ancestors because of their idolatry and also because of their hypocrisy, their oppressing of widows and orphans and other hypocrisy. But why is he angry with them? The exile seems to actually have cured God's people of idolatry. When they got back from the exile, they don't seem to have ever gone back to idols again. And there's nothing actually that particularly points to them here oppressing widows or orphans or other hypocrisy. So we've got to look somewhere else. To understand where they've gone wrong, we've got to remember their context. Just two months earlier, the Word of God had come to the prophet Haggai. And listen to what God had to say to them then in Haggai 1 verse 2. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? They're not guilty of idolatry or hypocrisy. Their fault is just getting on with their lives. They're panelling their houses. This is nothing luxurious or ornate. They're just getting on with the ordinary practical details of life. And they've realised that God's vision for the world, it's just not a practical one. It's just not the right time. It's not what they're living for. So they've just got on with normal things and left God's temple half done. And writing just two months later, Zechariah calls on the people to repent from the sin of, of just wanting to be normal. And he calls them to turn back to God. Now, there's nothing wrong with living in, in panelled houses, but to lose sight of God's vision and replace it with panelled houses? Well, Zechariah is saying that's as serious as idolatry and hypocrisy. God has rearranged history for them and brought down nations to put them there, not for the job of getting on with making their lives comfortable, but so that they can get on with the job of building his temple because it was a critical step in his kingdom vision for the world. They needed to turn back to God and God said he would return back to them because they've been called to a higher vision. And again, this was true for them and it's true for us. We're called to a higher vision than just living for ourselves in this world. You know, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. But then we too can live as if the time's not right for God's kingdom or God's will to be done. I mean, as a, as a teenager, we could think, well, when I'm in year 12, then, then I'll fully live for God's kingdom at that moment. But then you could imagine when you get to year 12, thinking, I'm too busy, there's too much going on. When I'm an adult, then I'll fully live for God's kingdom. 
But then when you're at uni, it's very easy to think, well, uni's too demanding. When I start work, then I'll be ready to be able to fully live for God's kingdom. But then you start work and you realize it's going to take a while to get used to and the time's still not right. Then we get married and we need time to get settled. Then we need time to get through the difficult years with the babies that turn into difficult decades, having to taxi the kids everywhere. And so we could do life thinking, well, when I'm retired, then, and I, I don't have to work so much, don't have to travel overseas so much, then the time will be right to live for God's kingdom. And of course, when we retire, we could think, once I've got through these health issues, finally, the time will be right. We could possibly go through life not having time for God's vision. When now is the right time, no matter what our circumstances Now is the right time to be captivated by what God's doing in the world. To live for our own kingdom at the expense of living for God's kingdom, well, that's to be just like Zachariah's ancestors who worshipped other gods and were hypocrites. And we too need to turn away from that and turn to God. After three months... Uh, of, after giving that difficult word to the people, Zechariah gets another word from God. He has a really uh, rough night's sleep, and in fact, he doesn't really get any sleep in the night at all. Uh, he sees a series of visions, and when he does manage to fall asleep, the angel kindly comes along and wakes him back up again and gives him a few more. He has eight visions, and they're all different to each other, but actually, they're all closely related. We're very quickly going to look at six of these eight visions and then next week we're going to look at the remaining two plus another one. But we're not going to work through the visions one to six. We're going to look at the first three and the last three. And the reason for that is because often in the Bible ideas were paired like this. So the first idea and the last idea were paired and the second idea... And the second last idea somehow fit together as well. And so on, and until you get to the middle. And there, in the middle, you often find the central idea. This is a way, uh, it's, it's still in some literature today, but this is a way that a lot of literature was like back then, not just in the Bible. The first and the last vision which appeared tell the people that God is at work behind the scenes to bring true peace. Zechariah has a vision of four groups of horses that have come back from patrolling the whole earth and their report to the head angel is that, that the whole world is at rest and at peace. Which sounds great, but have a look at the angel's response to this report in verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem? And from the towns of Judah, which you've been angry with these 70 years. The kind of peace that they find in the world is the peace of the nations having stomped on God's people and having got away with it. It's the kind of peace where the bad guys win in a a loving life. Israel's been broken by the nations. Their country, Judah, is now actually just a tiny sub-province in the Persian Empire. It's even got a Persian name now. They call it Yehud. The whole country 
had been reduced to just 65 kilometres by 55 kilometres. And the population at most was about 50,000 people. They're poor. They're paying taxes to a foreign nation. They're in danger from their their neighbouring countries who want to keep them down. And yes, there's peace in the world, but that's not any comfort to God's people because there's not justice. And so God answers the angel with words of comfort for God's people. He says that he's angry at the nations who feel secure. And in verse 16, he outlines what he's going to do. God says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy and there my house will be rebuilt and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. God's plan is to return to Jerusalem. He's no longer angry with his people and Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt starting with the temple. This vision is an invitation to God's people to lift their eyes and to see the world God's way. This is not just their work, this rebuilding. God and his angels stand behind what they're doing. This is part of God's plan to bring his kingdom. Well, the last vision is again about horses, but this time they're not patrolling the earth. Look at Zechariah 6 verse 1. I looked up again and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains mountains of bronze. Years earlier for the first temple, Solomon had build, built these amazing pillars of bronze that were at the entrance to the temple. They were 10 metres high. I don't know how high that is actually, but I imagine uh, at least the roof, if not higher, and two and a half metres thick. And these were at the entrance to the temple. They must have been an impressive sight to see. But this picture that Zechariah gets to see is even more impressive. Here, the horses coming from the Lord's presence, they they come from between mountains of bronze, not just pillars. In this vision, God is saying that after his temple's been rebuilt, the horses are going to be sent out again. But this time, they're not going to be patrolling the earth. This time, they're drawing the machinery of war, chariots, And they will achieve a true peace against the enemies of God's people. Unlike the false peace that was in the first vision. Look at verse 8. Then he called to me, look, those going towards the north country, that's where all of Israel's enemies came from, look, they have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. And again, this is an invitation to them to see the world God's way. God is going to achieve true peace. He's committed to that. But God will achieve true peace according to his plan and his schedule. And for them, that meant trusting him and getting on with the job of building the temple. In so many ways, our world is is no different to theirs back then. So often, the kind of peace that we find in our world is a, a peace that's got nothing to do with God. Nations feel secure and nations can even feel that they're better off without God. And it it can feel like ignoring God just has no consequences in this world. In China, there's there's state-approved Bible colleges 
and in those Bible colleges, they're not allowed to teach certain books of the Bible. And if you're in a church that's not state-approved in China, you can find yourself in all sorts of trouble. Or in Iran, if you become a Christian, you can be in prison. North Korea, if you're a Christian, you can be sentenced to hard labor. Islamic extremists target Christians and kill them. Some of the world is openly hostile to God and, and to his people. But most of the world actually is just smugly indifferent, at peace. Now, it's hardly likely that we're going to see God and what he wants ignored in the results of the postal vote that's going to come here in Australia. And it's hardly likely that we'll see a decision that flies in the face of what God wants. What should we do when that happens? What should we think? Well, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be sore losers either. We should grieve, but we should know that God's at work behind the scenes in this world. He really is. Our obedience to Him is not a waste of time. We're not throwing our lives away. He will bring His true peace, His rule to this world, but in His time. We need to trust His plan and His schedule. The second vision and the second last vision show that God will right the wrongs abroad and at home. In the second vision, Zechariah sees four horns and then four craftsmen. And in verse 21, we get to see what this means. The angel says, These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and to throw down these horns of the nations. It's pretty easy in this vision to figure out the identity of of the horns. Assyria and Babylon had behaved like animals and had scattered God's people into exile. But what's tricky to figure out is, who were the craftsmen? You know, is this Persia, who had defeated Babylon and then allowed the Jews to return and allowed them to start rebuilding the temple? But that's already something that's happened back years ago in their past. So why would Zechariah be seeing it now? And why are the craftsmen, why craftsmen terrorizing the nations? I mean, when we read craftsmen, we can basically read tradie. These people, they're very, they're very skilled at their building work. But how is it that the nations are going to be terrified and humbled by tradies? You'd expect nations to be toppled by four generals on the battlefield or four kings in their courts. But in this vision, the nations that scattered Israel are toppled by tradies doing their work. What's with that? Well, to understand this vision, again, you've got to remember the context. God has told them to rebuild the temple. And rebuilding the temple always requires tradies, craftsmen. In Exodus 35, 35, Moses commanded, uh, when, sorry, when God commanded that the tabernacle be built, Moses used the craftsman. It's the same word. Or in 1 Chronicles 22, 14, it describes, it's the word that describes the people that Solomon used to build the temple. And in 2 Kings 12, 12, it's the same word for those who restore the temple. And importantly, in Ezra 3, 7, It's the word used for those who end up building this temple that Zechariah is talking about. But do you see what this means? 
God's plan to judge the nations that cause war and devastation, it's not separate to his plans to rebuild the temple. Through the craftsmen who rebuild the temple, God was going to bring into the world a kingdom that will eventually sweep away and replace every earthly power. God uses human actions that spring from faith to bring about his plans for his world. And God is still the same today. He still uses our actions that spring from faith to bring about his plans in this world. Do you believe that? See, God calls us to live for the same kingdom as them. And like them, we don't advance God's kingdom on the battlefield or in the university lecture theatre or in parliaments. Like them, we're called to build the temple of God but not by building cathedrals or church buildings or temples. Jesus has announced a new phase to the building plan. God's building project is now the people of God. And so we are the tradies. When God works through us to build his living temple amongst us, we are the tradies. Our work might look weak and and not up to the task, but as we take the gospel message to the world, like we've been told to do, we play our part in bringing down opposition to God. We play our part in toppling kingdoms. As we tell people about forgiveness for those who turn back to God and judgment for those who oppose Him. So it might not look like it, but God's strength is at work even in our weakness. In the second last vision, which is paired with this one, Zachariah sees a basket with wickedness in it and he sees it lifted up and and taken away from the land and in chapter 5 verse 11 the angel tells Zachariah where they're taking the basket. He says, this is what the angel says, to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When the house is ready the basket will be set there in its place. This is a strange vision, I mean they're all strange visions but this is a very strange vision and the strangest bit of it is that even as God's house is being built, at the same time, a house is being built for wickedness in Babylon. There are two temples being built. In the Bible, Babylon always represents human rule in opposition to God's rule. And God is saying to them here that that wickedness doesn't belong amongst His people. And He's saying that as He returns to Jerusalem... Wickedness and sin are somehow going to be removed from the land. In fact, the first three visions, they show that God really is returning to His people to dwell with them. And the second three show that as God does, He's going to somehow remove sin from His people. We see this again in the third and the third last vision, which show that God is the maintainer the builder and the maintainer of the beautiful city. In the third vision, Zechariah sees a young man who's heard the message from the first vision. He heard God say, the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. And this guy, this, this young guy, he's a doer. He throws himself into the job. We see this in 2 verse 1. Before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand... I asked, where are you going? 
And he answered me to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. This looks like a good thing, doesn't it? This looks like finally somebody obeying God. But look at the reaction from another angel in verse 3. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run! Tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. This is an urgent message that the young man needs to hear right away. His intentions might be good, He's been inspired by God's vision for the world. But he's getting it all wrong. Because he's getting on with the job with a human blueprint in mind. He's not dreaming big enough. And he's relying on his own strength. He's measuring the walls so that he can start rebuilding the walls with stone. But God's got something so much bigger in mind. The Jerusalem of the future will will surpass anything that he can imagine. This city is going to be overflowing. God himself is going to dwell there. And God himself will be a wall of fire around them, protecting them. In this vision, God is again inviting them to stop seeing things through the eyes of humans and to lift their vision and see what he has in store. There was nothing wrong with with building the city walls in time, but that was not what was needed then. What they needed then was to trust God and His timing and to get on with building the temple in that moment. We need to hear what this young man needs to hear. In fact, I think we desperately need to hear it, just like he did. If we don't lift our vision to see things God's way, then... We won't do actions that spring from faith. We'll do actions that spring from human vision, done in human strength, actions that are destined to fail. And if we only partially lift our vision like this young man and and then try to get on with the job, we won't dream big enough. We'll just take up the measuring line like him and we'll just play church measuring things here and there, putting things in place, making things happen, but in reality just building a pile of rubble that's useless. We need to get on with the task that God gives us in building His kingdom and we need to do it in His strength. And the task that we're called to do is to pray, to love people and to speak God's word into their lives. And through our actions springing from faith, God gathers in a people and many nations who will dwell with him for all eternity in a city built by his hands, ringed with fire. In the final vision that we're looking at today, the third last vision, we see that it's not just enough for God's people to have the temple amongst them. They also need to live as God's faithful covenant people too. But God himself is somehow going to bring this about. There's a scroll that represents his word that will banish people who refuse to live according to God's way and in fact will destroy all trace of them. 
What this is saying is that there's no place in God's kingdom for people who want to live in defiance of God. People can't claim his name, but then want to live in defiance to everything that his name stands for. That kind of person is banished. He will completely remove them from his people. It's God who builds his city, and it's God who will somehow remove sin from his people. We'll see more of this next week. But for now, we've reached the end of having seen all of these uh, the visions that we're looking at today. And we've seen that God called his people to rebuild his temple in a hostile pagan world that seemed invincible. And here, with these visions, he's, he's lifting their vision to see the world his way. They are playing a role in his plans. God is, is the true builder of the kingdom, but he was choosing to bring it closer through them. The small, unimpressive temple that they were building in a hostile world was not a small thing in God's plan. It was exactly what was needed at that place, in that moment. They were feeling overwhelmed and downcast, but they didn't need to. What was needed was to turn back to a God who was ready to turn back to them. What was needed was to see things how he sees them. And that's what we need to do too. See things how God sees them and then get on with what's needed in our place, in our moment, in his strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these ancient visions that Zechariah saw and the way they spoke to your people back then. Lord, in the powerful way they speak to us now. Lord, we have seen more than your people back then have seen. We've seen Jesus, your complete revelation of yourself. We have your Holy Spirit living amongst us. Lord, lift our eyes to see the world your way. Help us not to get on with just the ordinary, but instead, Lord, help us to see that in our ordinary lives, we live for you and your kingdom comes and your will is being done even now and, Lord, you invite us to be a part of it. Lord, help us to see that our small efforts that may seem weak are actually a part of your glorious plan to bring your rule over the face of this earth. Lord, we long for that day. Help us to know that you're at work bringing it about. And Lord, help us to joyfully play our part in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.